G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, any other reviews can leave to other other uh, other podcasts that you listen to. But really appreciate if you appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes of your time uh, and leave us a review. So we've got uh, we've got one from uh, Rachel Lowton uh, um, recently, and five stars very very good and um and i thought they're very beneficial even a third year student in glasgow so um bride yj 55 um said that they uh, enjoy sort of the great topics and dugan 07 um and other names tropmeister and london vets so uh, so there's a, a lot of recent um uh, reviews and thank you so very much for that it definitely helps us um with the metrics and getting this information out to people who uh, who want to listen to it so we're back in the in the studio uh, and uh, brian is, is back on the whistles and faders so hopefully this will uh, will sound a bit better than maybe the uh, last one and we're going to talk to uh, my favorite uh, resident laura cole um so uh, laura is one of our residents here in a final year of uh, emergency and critical care residency at the RVC. So thank you very much for joining us, Laura. No, thanks for having me. I feel very honoured. And we're going to... Uh, we thought we'd talk about um, hypoglycemia because I, I know you, uh, you wrote an interesting article in a publication um, about uh, about hypoglycemia. So I thought maybe we could have a, have a little chat about it. And I think I like hypoglycemia as an entity because um, in my mind there's not necessarily uh, an infinite uh, amount of things that could, could cause it. So, um, so maybe I could ask you to start off with, by saying, um, what? How, how do these uh, hypoglycemic patients present? So, um, I guess um, you know, hypoglycemia. Um, you can all think about it with us, with ourselves. What happens when you get low um, blood glucose? Uh, and I'll always remember um, a cat that had an, like an insulin overdose, and um, it was being hospitalised, monitoring for um, any hypoglycemia. And you kind of get this initial, as you can imagine, surge in um, adrenaline, uh, and you kind of get that sort of response, and they can sort of feel it coming along. And I'll never forget this cat's like howling, like um, from this sort of surge of catecholamines um so you can kind of get that initially not not always um and then obviously the brain is the obligate, obligate requirer for glucose so you'll end up getting um obtundation um severe lethargy progressing to seizures you can get apparent blindness um and something i've seen a few times in a, in a recent um study in jfms reported in about one in six cats they had signs of kind of cardiovascular collapse so um were bradycardic and um hypertensive which it's unclear exactly what the cause of that is, but maybe related to some sort of autonomic surge. Um, but I thought that was quite an interesting um, sign um, that I have personally seen and something that can be related to the hypoglycemia. I suppose what probably we should um, say about clinically significant hypoglycemia or that that you maybe you want to treat because I imagine there's a lot of patients that are hypoglycemia what are our definitions is it that we are just under the reference range mm. or that actually we're having clinical signs associated with it because I suppose certain conditions that maybe I was thinking like dogs have maybe the uh, um, insulinomas sometimes yeah. if they yeah. have a lower set point they actually manage the really low levels of yeah. glucose in a kind of functional sort of without any, any yeah and it's, it's really interesting because then you have other patients that um, you know they will come in and their glucose will be you know 
bottom normal, not abnormal, and they are very neurological. So it's kind of the rapidity of the onset. And also you've got to be aware of um, that, um, again, I found it very, very interesting on a few cases that I'd seen that their glucose was normal by the time they got to us as a referral, and they are still very neurological. And I you know the brain being like an oblate requirer of glucose that with you've got severe enough hypoglycemia or persistent enough then you're going to get neuronal necrosis and that that's not going to be reversed with fixing the um, hypoglycemia so i think that with regards to treatment i would always if they you know tick boxes of kind of signs consistent with hypoglycemia then i would consider bolusing them with um dextrose and I think it sometimes can be confusing in the formulary because it talks about grams whereas I think kind of a rule of thumb is 0.5 mil per kilo bolus um you know I dilute it one-to-one uh with um water for injection or um saline if they're clinical but again as you said with the insulinoma patients we would be concerned if you're bolusing that glucose what's going to happen they're going to get a surge of insulin and then you're going to make things a lot worse so you don't correct a number um use that number to help you kind of investigate further causes of hyperglycemia which i'm sure we'll come on to but if they are showing signs that fit with hyperglycemia then i feel you should bolus them and i don't know if you have any other Thoughts. No, no, no. I, th- I think I think that's uh, I think that's that's good. So, how do um, how do you think, or what, or, or did it differ in how you sort of measured blood glucose in in practice than um, than now? Or is it pretty much the same, or, or do you do you have any um, preferences of different? Yeah, I, this is like a million dollar question um, because um, I guess we we have kind of in-house blood gas machines that read the glucose. Um, so they're called a radiometer. Um, and you also have the alpha track, which for me was what I was always had in in practice. Now, which one you believe? I think the jury's out, but they you know they can be sort of one uh, one millimole per liter different. Um, I guess if there's Americans listening, we're doing millimoles, whereas um, mg per deciliter is what you use in the US, and it's you know eighteen uh, mg per deciliter equals one millimole per liter. Um, so kind of drastically different numbers. Um, I. I remember reading in the human literature that they were saying, you know, maybe arterial glucose is more um, uh, is a more accurate than um, you know capillary. But obviously, you know, I don't think we should be getting an arterial sample to measure uh, blood glucose. I think what you use is use your machine and use that machine subsequently, so you can look at the trends. Um, I guess one other thing to consider, there was a, a paper um, you know, a, a few years ago that looked at the effect of PCV on um, blood glucose measurement. So when you, uh, and these were your bedside monitors, so your, your alpha track. And so if you had a very, very high PCV, then your blood glucose will be artificially lowered. And if you had a very, very low PCV, your blood glucose will be um, artificially elevated. So um, there are, you know, correction formulas, which I don't know off the top of my head, but we could put in the show notes. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. No, it's, it's a good point that, that that if patients are sort of borderline and they're quite anemic, then actually maybe uh, their blood glucose is a, is a, is artificially higher than, um, uh, sorry, artificially higher than the reading yeah. um, that you have and probably you, you need to sort of do something about that. 
as I suppose for um, and any um, listener, I suppose the, the best thing is, is a glucometer that is um, uh, like validated for use in yeah, dogs and yeah. cats. And I suppose that's why we, we tend to use the alpha track, and that's our our main go to really, isn't it? For 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 the majority of patients that we have, even if we have blood glass machines, and I suppose that that's I think definitely been the trend. Um, you know, say in the last sort of maybe five or six years, you know, definitely using the machines that are more appropriate or been validated for dogs and cats yeah. and what, whatever whatever it is. So um, and also they're, they're they're pretty reliable and and um, um, and uh, you don't need a lot of blood, which mm. is the which is the which is the good thing. So uh, so we spoke a bit about the clinical science, sort of how we, how do we measure? Or, or I suppose like do you do you measure? Do you send off blood glucose to the lab at any any time? I think that um, working in the emergency room, probably not. But I know that, you know, our medics will probably send away. I think it's, it's a fluoride tube um, for kind of get. And I do think that maybe these devices have been validated f- using the kind of lab standard. But obviously, if you're considering a hypoglycemic patient, you need to know there and then. Um, and then you need to do it fairly frequently. So I think that's probably the other point I would say that you document a patient's hypoglycemic they're clinical, you give them a bolus, then when do you recheck it? Like, uh, you know, you, um, well, one, is the bolus going to be enough or do you feel like you need to put them on a su- supplementation? Um, so there's no good just bolusing saying I'll fix that and then walk away and, and deal with another patient because one, you need to consider why that patient's hypoglycemic and two, they're not going to maintain a normal glycemia. So um, normally I would probably give the bolus and um, dot on the kennel sheet, you know, even if I've got other things to do that it's checked, you know, depending on how sick the patient, if it's there, sort of, you know, stuporous, I want to check as soon as I give them the bolus. But if it's kind of, you know, just obtunded, then maybe I say half an hour later, um, I'm preemptively considering getting a, a dextrose supplement bag set up um, so you can make up kind of um, 5% or uh, 2.5% um, supplement by adding, um, you know, 50 um 50 or 100 mils or 50 percent glucose yes yeah, so when we're talking about um giving up giving a bolus or an emergency then we're talking about 50 percent glucose and diluting that to, to try and make a 10 percent or less sort of solution because to try and avoid the um, thrombophlebitis or anything like that um and uh, and and that and that's sort of ideal I, th- I suppose as far as the timing like when you um, when you want to check things, I think I think it's it, you're right. It's really difficult. But I suppose like after your bolus, if you want to know whether that's had an effect, then probably it's more appropriate to to measure measure it at that point in time. Yeah. Um, I remember speaking to to uh, Stein and Eason about um, blood glucose and when when to measure things, and and I think after twenty minutes or half an hour, you know things should have have uh, have set, settled. Um, so that probably be at the time. Or if you if you supplement blood glucose and you stop that. Within yeah. twenty minutes or half an hour, that's you when you should idea, see, yeah. see where, where where problems are occurring. And do, would you um, would you always start at two and a half percent or five percent, or does it depend? Or so I, th- I think um, you know classically we say two point five percent at maintenance fluid rate, and then you go to five percent at maintenance. I I um, I struggle with the, the keep changing the bags. It's quite frustrating. So I normally just start on five percent and one mil per kilo per hour, and then you know you can reduce that. You can go up. You can go up rather than some people would do two point five percent at maintenance and then realise it's not enough and then increase. Um, I think that I never experienced it in practice. I could only need to go to five percent. Uh, you know up at like four mil per kilo per hour but in the really kind of sick patients that we have here they're really um 
the fun cases I think we've been having to go to like 7.5% 10% in those cases that should be going through a central venous catheter so um, a jugular line um, but just because of the osmolality and um, yeah the effect on um, phlebitis I think it's very practical to make a 5% solution and just run it at a lower amount. And I suppose that the the, the good thing is then you've got another bag of fluids to, to run without any supplementation yeah. that you can address sort of the um, the intravascular volume or the hydration yeah. status without playing with it. Because sometimes if you if you dial up what if you if you dial up a bag containing two and a half percent or five percent glucose to mm-hmm whatever two times three times maintenance or whatever formulation you'd like and you're going to get hyperglycemic yeah. very quickly so. and i think sometimes some people do it where they put glucose potassium in a you know a bag of hartman's all in one and i i much prefer having bags separately so i'm like okay i've got my csl that i can bolus if i'm going to i've got my potassium supplements required they can all kind of join you know near the port but they're kind of on their own line so you can fiddle with the um uh, fiddle with the rates. I mean, I don't think I, I don't think the nurses appreciate it as much because then there's a bit of a fuller kennel sheet. But I find that easier because what's the likelihood you're going to manipulate your glucose at the same time you manipulate, manipulate your potassium? It's very unlikely. And otherwise, you have to throw things away and, and sort of start yeah. start again. So um, to as far oh the the other thing I was I was thinking about when you say like how do you measure blood glucose with the fluoroxalate tube is right. is I um, I suppose I'd always do that. If if I suspected an insulin oh, okay, yeah. So I, I suppose I'd always send it off to the lab just in case that you're for whatever reason whatever reason you're reading on a on a, the whatever glucose measuring device you have is is not entirely yeah. accurate because to get a a, uh, a insulin level at the same time. So I suppose that that would be the only the only time I think in a, even in a, an emergency sense I would I would yeah and I guess the other that. thing with that is um, with dogs that you're suspicious of an insulinoma is making sure you get your blood sample to, to test for insulin levels before you give glucose mm. um, so we try and those kind of middle-aged dogs that come in and they're doing quite well with a blood glucose of one two would probably draw extra i think it's serum but um but draw extra blood so that then you can um submit it um uh, for yeah for external in lab the other thing i'd say about sampling is sometimes and these in patients that are like in you know diabetic and they're in for monitoring that you know we sometimes will get you know less so here but i did it in practice is that get ear pricks and i've had some erroneous glucose readings from an ear prick and it may be that we're just you know getting more interstitial fluid rather than the um actual um capillary fluid so if it's you know quite markedly different to what you've been getting or just doesn't fit with the animal's presentation then try and get the kind of venous proper venous sample yeah, that's that's, uh, that's very sensible. So, do you do you have uh, any um, uh, algorithm or things like a, a tick box list to think if your patient is hypoglycemic, like what is what is going on with them? Oh, this is like one of my favourite um, questions for students. I think how I find it useful, which maybe works for some people and maybe less for others, is I just try and think of kind of a physiology of why this like physiology behind glucose and glucose production um, in the body. So um, I guess kind of simply, first of all, where do we get glucose from? We get it from our food um, and and we should have kind of a you know, carbohydrate. Um, a carbohydrate will then allow us to get uh, a carbohydrate in our diet will allow us to get glucose. Um, 
one of students' kind of favourite, I uh, think, reasons for, to say that why a patient's hyperglycemic is just they haven't eaten in three days. And I think that that is very reasonable for a puppy, um, you know, a kitten or a toy breed um, dog or an emaciated dog. I think for um, the average dog or cat coming into the hospital with a reasonable body condition score, they should have enough body reserves that, you know, if you think about um, going back to, you know, early years of university, that they should have enough fat and sort of, you know, protein stores to um, make glucose in times where they're not getting enough nutrition in. So I we should be careful saying, oh, it's just because they've not eaten um, unless they are um, juvenile or a toy breed dog. Um, And then we should be looking for kind of other reasons. So I guess in those states when you're not getting enough food in, where does your glucose come from? As we said, um, said protein and fat stores, and you need your liver for gluconeogenesis. So if your liver's shot, if you've got liver failure, then you can't make glucose um so you know in our kind of line of work it'll be your kind of acute hepatopathy acute liver failure i guess the most common thing you'd see in practice is um a shunt so um a poor systemic shunt um you can have other other markers of um, liver dysfunction but hyperglycemia is, is is one of them and there can be various degree some patients i find very clinical for it and other patients are not clinical for the hypoglycemia um and I guess kind of one that fits within liver as well as its own mechanism is um, xylitol, um, which itself causes a kind of like insulin surge um, as well as um, having what we suspect to be more of an idiosyncratic effect on the liver. And so it's always one of the first questions you kind of ask owners. Um, Other toxins... I think that's the major one, but I think maybe beef jerky, I've never seen it, but I've read it, and oleander, I think, is the other one. Yeah, I suppose suppose that um, if you had something that destroyed your liver as as well, so any 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 hepatotoxins. However, the the thing is that you'd you'd have other signs associated with the with the liver as well, wouldn't you? So so that often um, would be if if it was something that destroyed the liver and you're getting hyperglycemic, then you'd probably be jaundiced. You'd probably have a coagulopathy because because you know gluconeogenesis is one of those fundamental things that the body would try and salvage yeah. before and so you'd have your hyperalbuminemia your low urea looking at everything in in conjunction mm. um i guess so as i said the kind of liver producers um in in times of need um and then i'd say well what is something consuming your glucose so um you know there's that kind of big thing about the um hunting dog it's your favourite, isn't it? You like this one. Um, the hunting dog disease or um, hu- hunting dog hyperglycemia is it's kind of working dog breeds um, that essentially just like use you know more glucose than they kind of can get in really i don't i haven't seen one have you um no there, there's there's case oh, uh, dogs, reports in and well yeah or or uh, cock, working cock spams yeah. in the uk or they're called hunting dogs in in the states but i think these are the the thing is that they're uber fit dogs that that run and run and they have very low body fat and they just exercise until they collapse and yeah. if you read like there's case reports of uh, in the vet record of uh, 
um, that's giving some sort of sugar supplement or even Mars bars, heaven mm-hmm. forbid, you know, the <laughs> something like that to, to bring to them, them back, yeah, yeah to, to 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 revive them. And this is from the seventies uh, and eighties. It's quite it's quite interesting, but I think it's it's a it's a a different demographic than majority of yeah. animals that we see. And I, I imagine that the people that um, deal with those very athletic dogs uh, know about it. More, yeah, know, know about it more, yeah. Um, and I guess the um, the big thing, obviously, so we said about kind of excessive consumption. Um, the one thing, again, you know, working in emergency and critical care, and, and it's very important that you detect this early, is is sepsis. So, um, you know, if you think that the, the bugs need energy, they're going to use the glucose. Um, so bacteria you know bacterial or viral so parvovirus can cause it. any bacteria um will kind of um, consume that glucose so if we have a hypoglycemic patient and it looks pretty ropey then we go looking for um a source of infection um so where do you go looking well looking for free fluid um classically in the abdomen in the chest like urine i think i maybe underestimated the like the severity of urinary tract infections when i was in general practice but you know here we've had patients that have been very very sick and it's essentially because they have a urinary tract infection so thinking that sepsis is not just an infection it's the body's response to it so um if the body wants to overreact and go you know full-on crazy with this infection then it can and it can you know be life-threatening even just from a sort of uti so making sure you're looking for those sources of infection and look doing free fluid check um, with ultrasound and getting a you know a sample of urine is really important in that initial kind of um, phase um, I think there was also a discussion about Babesia causing hypoglycemia, probably less relevant in the UK or maybe perhaps becoming more relevant. Um, so kind of just thinking any infectious agent, the ones we most look for are bacteria, um, but, you know, virals, so your parvoviruses and then uh, parasites um, can cause it too. Absolutely, absolutely. So I suppose, so you, you know, we might just need to supplement those for for a uh, for a period of period of time, um, and deal with the underlying sort of cause of, of sepsis. When you mentioned before the sort of neonatal or juvenile hypoglycemia, how how do you um, how do you manage those? So I guess um, in those patients that feed them, <laughs> essentially just. Um, they normally, if they want to eat, just feed them. And, um, you know, we have, like, puppies that are in that have just got themselves a bit low. Um, you give them, you know, fluid, resuscitate them, and then they start eating, and you just continually feed them. And I think it's something to be aware of when those uh, juvenile patients come into the hospital, that if they they need a constant ready supply of food um unless they're going to have a plan proceed if they're going to have a plan plan procedure i'd probably put them on a dextrose supplement but in the hospital you need to dot down feed feed you know and i probably say every every couple of hours um and you know normally put like a, a kind of warning on the kennel sheet sort of saying if looking lethargic or you know check bg um on and have them down for routine blood glucose checks um so that we're keeping an eye on that I think the only thing that changed so when um, uh, Dan Chan used to talk to to us about this, he would he would say that because you have a, a lack of glycogen stores, it needs time to build it up. So you're absolutely right to to feed them and and probably you know supplement them for blood glucose or, or feed them, but make sure that you'll do that quite um, well for at least a couple of days mm. before you discharge them. Because I think that I've definitely and I've definitely seen this before. You know, uh, uh, um, patients are treated in practice. You know, you feed them, they look all right. You send oh, them yeah. home and they 
bounce back again because uh, they stopped eating again. So, so yeah. So I suppose it's just making sure that people will not not just bounce them bounce them out yeah. just make and sure they're they, really rewarding you know. ones i remember mm. we had one recently that came in and the puppy was like peri arrest just because it was you know severely hypoglycemic um and you know placed a placed a line gave it some dextrose and then it's like eating 30 minutes later and you know you like saved a lot if that's what you do it for so uh, it's really important i think you don't like you said you only need a tiny bit of blood to check blood glucose so in any sick patient even i don't I, like, you can get no one has an excuse to get a tiny bit of blood that you can check a blood glucose and it can essentially you know be life-saving life yeah <clears throat> well when i talk to uh, uh, about about cpr with our, with our students I, I do use what a, what a friend of mine who's a uh, um who's a, an emergency consultant in, in people um hello natalia um oh. but she uh, always says so airway breathing circulations a b c d f g don't ever forget glucose uh, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know it is a, a paramount and fundamental uh, fundamental thing and sometimes we do um yeah we do miss it you yeah know? and even 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 when we're even when we're looking from time to time and um, i guess the um uh, the, uh, the other thing what, uh, what i was thinking was regards to um, with regards to the history that you know if you work for a kind of an out of hours provider you don't have history with the vets know if the patient is on insulin because i guess kind of insulin an overdose of an in- insulin um is a common cause probably the most common cause of hypoglycemia that i saw in general practice and it may be that one owner gave the um, insulin injection and then the other owner came home and did it but neither of them know they've just found the cat or dog um quite lethargic and not really wanting to move so it's important you interrogate, A, are they diabetic? Because you forget some owners may not feel that they should... That's important, but the information when they're panicking, and two, sort of just determining whether there could have been any chance. And those, I don't know if you find it, but those um, patients that have had overdoses, as particularly cats, I find they're hypoglycemic for quite a long time, like... Um, after presentation so I think I had an advice call once saying well what do I do the cats come in it's fine but obviously you need to think and it's different in each patient where the nadir of that insulin therapy is so the final presentation of course they're going to be but there's going to be a point in that night when they're not going to be so I would always recommend hospitalizing them and um you know again people sort of say well I don't have out of hours or I haven't got anyone there all the time that I I would definitely recommend going to an institution where you can supplement or even just monitoring the glucose Uh, and you normally need to do it for a good you know 12 hours um and undoubtedly it will fall yeah and I think even the people might uh, have made a mistake without actually realizing it as well mm, rather than yeah. just sort of double dosing but I, I agree that if if insulin's ever involved then that's got to be your first uh, um rather than look for anything else yeah. you know like it's, it's definitely the most common thing as in to, uh, as to human anyway so um so yes yeah, so ab- absolutely and, and think about the as you said the nadir and you know even if that's going to be an unsuitable hour as well yeah uh, it's going to be a problem yeah. and, and a bit of a, a bit of a time uh, time bomb for for that do you think so as far as like clinically significant hypoglycemia as in when patients show those uh, clinical signs we spoke about so hydrogenic insulin overdose what and uh, um, as we said the neonatals what the other and, and sepsis so there are there other things that you think uh, are, are often so so when the blood glucose is on the floor sort of thing yeah I guess so we talked about the other way I kind of think about um, going back to how I th- 
approach a hypoglycemic patient as I kind of have these thoughts, you know, going in my head saying, okay, well, not getting enough in, is it kind of the, you know, the signalment to fit that? What's going on with the liver? have you know insulin because obviously in, insulin is going to um lower your glucose so either insulin um exogenously or endogenous insulin which we kind of touched upon already um big one is insulinoma and normally in those jogs um the insulin um, the glucose is like on the floor you know it's like one 1.2 and they're poshing around quite happily and it's because they've obviously been coping with that for quite a while um so um don't be surprised and in those patients I wouldn't be bolusing them because you're just going to make things worse um I guess the other um uh, cases so you can kind of get insulin like factors released um that can antagonize your glucose and um they are uh, it's classically kind of um neoplasia so sort of um uh, certain forms of cancers so i think it's like the um leiomyosarcomas your carcinomas um are the most likely um i know this is one of your favorite questions at round so what's the what's the other one Tom? you wrote the things that affect the, the liver as, as well but the oh, other yeah, ones are the leiomyomas and the leiosarcomas pulmonary carcinomas mammary carcinoma or melanomas and i think that um that was um it was a really interesting case for me where uh, it was a 10-year-old boxer came in that was seizuring and this was a call from a vet and and um, said, yeah, I've got a seizuring boxer, which was obviously pattern recognition, everybody's first thought with a 10-year-old seizuring boxer. Um, and the patient came in and its blood glucose was like four. Um, so what you would consider kind of low end of normal range. Um, and... It was still kind of a neurological. Maybe the blood glucose dropped a bit, maybe like three, three and a half, but nothing you'd really sort of write home about. Um, and obviously, everyone thinks this this patient has a brain tumor, and that's why it's seizuring. Um, and I can't remember why, but I had I think maybe not, that was it. I I um I scanned its belly as I kind of in the emergency room and saw a mass in its abdomen. I was like, oh, has this dog got two problems? Has it got you know a brain tumor and a mass in its um abdomen? Really not linking um the two. Uh, anyway, the dog had a CT and it had a stomach wall mass that then was um, resected. I think it, the CT may have included the brain as well, just for good measure. Um and. It came back as a leiomyosarcoma and the dog never seizured again. So I think that's a kind of rare occurrence, you know, but I think think horses, but also the occasional zebra. And actually, in that case, that wasn't your kind of standard older boxer brain tumour. There's nothing more we can do. Um, That dog, you know, recovered and is doing perfectly fine and never had a seizure since. And that was about six months ago. And uh, it's a, it's good. I, I suppose it's a combination of a number of different things, Laura, because you've got your, your pattern recognition from going away from your clinical reasoning and, yeah. then, and then everything everything else in between. Um, and uh, I, I suppose there's there's a few, we, we touched on a few artifactual uh, increases, but uh, polycythemia, as, as, as we mentioned before, but leukocytosis as well as uh, um, oh. if you send a sample into a lab that's not in a fluoride tube, then... Be careful. I mean, I think most labs I know that our, our internal lab won't report a blood glucose unless you send them in a fluoride oh, yeah, tube. Yeah, yeah. But I, I know that other labs, or, or definitely when I was uh, in Australia, they'd always report a blood glucose even if you've sent it in. And so if it was low, you'd just ignore it anyway because you'd sent it in and yeah, it's taking yeah, yeah. time to, to do round. that. So uh, I suppose bear that in mind for, for whatever whatever providers that, that people have. Um, and... Um, 
I'm forgetting my really good differential. My favourite one. <laughs> what is your favourite differential? <laughs> my favourite differential. So uh, I guess uh, thinking of the... Um, Again, going back to sort of glucose metabolism in the body, so you have insulin that will lower your glucose, but then you need to think, well, what are your counter-regulatory hormones? So what's going to come into action when your blood glucose drops? And uh, cortisol. So, um, yeah, my favourite uh, favorite diagnosis is um, Addison's. So, um, yeah, so hypoadrenal cortisol, you're going to have low cortisol, and you can get hypoglycemia. And I think you see it more often than not um yeah and it's just a great it's a great diagnosis because then you can you know manage them and yeah absolutely i, th- I think they they're often hypoglycemic i'm not i, I and, and this is this well, is not clinical re- not clinical yeah i know. think you're right yeah 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 but but i they, they definitely are hypoglycemic but not clinical um i suppose what we didn't touch on is so what do you do if you if you're um giving a glucose uh giving giving dextrose you know you've gone up to a two and a half percent solution a five percent solution the blood glucose is still low like what would you what 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 things can can we do then oh yeah so i guess how high you go up i think maybe it depends on the cause i guess because um what else have we got in our toolbox or well, we've got glucagon um which i didn't have in practice i don't know whether you did um and it's a it's a nightmare because i think it's like nanograms or something um, like the dose is in like nanograms so then you're sitting there in the middle of the night trying to work out like your conversion to get you a mils per hour um but particularly useful if you've got an insulinoma because obviously you don't want to be giving really high rates of glucose because you've got to promote further insulin uh, surge so um, putting them on a CRI of glucagon and I think there was a, a paper maybe last year of like a case series of dogs being given glucagon in like the journal of veterinary emergency and critical care and it just sort of said these are the doses that people used it was pretty safe it did its job so it's not I I think the first time I used it I was quite kind of scared of it but mainly because of the conversion of um but actually it's fine it doesn't doesn't the glucose doesn't go up to like 30 you know it's quite gentle and in in that study and when i've used it kind of had it with a glucose in the background as well Mm. um so that's kind of another tool and i think like if you i mean my impression is that we probably use it maybe once a year or yeah i mean think maybe in my residency i've used it a couple of times so probably yeah once a year i think it's one of those things you crack out when it's not getting you're not getting anywhere as well um and uh and how, how about steroids uh, i guess um depends on your etiology um so obviously in addison's you would consider giving um steroids and certain neoplastic causes but i, I would probably i would make sure you have a really good look for what's caused um what's causing your hyperglycemia before cracking out the steroids i would probably I haven't given them unless I've confirmed you've got an Addisonian. No, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Like, I think the problem is there's quite a few neoplastic causes of of, uh, um, of hypoglycemia, and probably if you're not sure what's going on, it'd be um, not necessarily good to to give. That's probably where glucagon might be might be better in those patients if you're if you're struggling um, maintaining a blood glucose rather than just giving steroids that might interfere with your diagnostic capabilities yeah. in, in the future. Um, and obviously, being an emergency, we have steroids are the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Working in critical care, you're like, oh. 
It's not. They're not. Not, not often we, uh, we we reach for them. Um, absolutely, unless 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 uh, there's there's normally a reason. Absolutely. Do do you think um, we've missed anything out, Laura? Um, I think probably just in going back to my sort of like your um, mechanisms of hypoglycemia, I'd say that um, again, very rare. But if we talk about um, excessive counter um, or too little counter-regulatory hormones, so we said low cortisol, and the classic is Addison's. But you know, hypopituitarism. So if you had like a you know a dwarf or something, you know, maybe. Um, and I just think thinking about it in that way like helped me think of all the possible you know common things are common but then also there are going to be some rarer cases um so if you can kind of think back to basics of how glucose gets into the body where it's stored and how we like mobilize glucose in times of stress i kind of i think it makes it easier and especially for people taking exams to um think of those differentials and kind of put it into a clinical context oh yes uh, very good um, well, thank you very much for your time today, Laura. Thank you for having me. And, uh, and yeah, thank you for joining us, uh, joining, joining Brian and myself in the studio, and uh, we'll wrap it up there. So uh, thanks again for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or, or any others, and we'll place some show notes on the RBC pages. Uh, just type in RBC Clinical Podcast in your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, then please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.